Welcome to this podcast recording from the 2022 Pod Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference. The Pod Conference is produced by the Conference Forum. For more information, please visit podconference.com. Enjoy the podcast recording from Pod 2022. First, I'd like to ask each one of my panelists to sort of provide a brief introduction about themselves. So we can start here. Sure. Uh, Matt O'Brien. I'm at Genentech. I have a group that does uh, formulation and drug delivery for novel modalities. Uh, prior to this, I was at Pfizer and did uh, long-acting injectables for small molecules with a range of different uh, uh, aspects. Frédéric Dargelas, I'm the head of the business development in Delcitech, and we are doing long-acting injectables, subcutaneous and intravitreal. Hi, Mark Henricks, uh, part of DSM Biomedical. DSM Biomedical is part of Royal DSM, a, a worldwide company in health, nutrition, and biosciences. At DSM Biomedical, we're experts in biomaterial science that we bring to fruition in the medical device and obviously also in the pharma space. I'm uh, Brent Bouchine, the CEO of Wingap Medical. At Wingap, uh, we developed uh, two auto-injector technologies. Um, everything we do is focused on dual-chamber reconstitution, whether it's lyo, powder for powder for mixing, liquid-liquid, and you know we're trying to simplify, automate, and accelerate um, difficult-to-mix drugs. So in this session, we're going to talk about what does it take to be successful for developing um, long-acting injectables or biologics. As we've heard at this session, there's a lot of products out there in terms of for small molecules. I guess the question is, why is it so difficult? What are some of the challenges? What are the opportunities? Where is the future? Um, what, what's the future going to look like? So maybe to, to start us off with, Matt, I wanted to ask you, why haven't long-acting deliverable technologies been successful for small molecules? been um, translated to large molecules? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so uh, a couple of years ago, I had written a, a review article with some folks from the FDA looking at uh, long-acting injectables, building a landscape, and looking at those that were controlled by uh, formulation. And we had 41 products that we had identified. Only 11 of those were peptides, zero were biologics. Uh, and so you can see that there's definitely a huge number that have been out there, but, but not too many that have been successful. And one of the main differences is if you look at the target durations for long-acting injectables for peptides and small molecules, compared to others, typically a lot shorter. And, uh, you know, in particular, when we look at those products, only about 25% of them had release durations that were greater than one month. And of those products, you know, the most common technologies were suspensions and polymeric microspheres, where for the suspensions, you're modifying the drug to have poor solubility and then going through like a wet milling process or something like that. And those types of approaches are just not particularly translatable to large molecules. And I'm sure the other folks will talk more about some of the other approaches. And so maybe we can turn this over to Mark. I think, um, as we've talked about, there's been products with polymer-based systems for small molecules. Why has it been so difficult for large molecules? Can you provide your perspective? Yeah, the way we, we look at that is, is indeed, uh, and this was presented uh, several times also in the technology tracks yesterday, that polymer-based systems have been quite successful for particularly small molecule drugs. So we, we basically identified three, three main parameters that, uh, or limitations that I think have 
have been an impediment to, to the development of long-acting biologics. One is the is diffusion, the in, basically the inability of, of large biologics to diffuse through a polymer matrix, unlike most small molecule drugs. Uh, the second part is, is limitations in regard biostability that was already touched on as well within a polymer matrix setting, and particularly if you look at it over the duration of the of the the, the loading and release that is required for a long-acting biologic in, a, in an environment that is hydrated, 27C, and particularly with the more traditional polymer design systems, PLGA-based systems, in an environment that throughout the degradation period is increasingly subject to, to core acidification. The third, third part parameter is, is what we call payload, payload limitations. Small molecule drugs are exactly that, they're small. Large biologics are exactly that, they're large. So on a gram-to-gram -gram basis, you obviously can load much less molecules of, of the drug in, in a particular uh, polymer design system. And that within the constraints of what is acceptable for patients or what the market accepts largely thinking about needle injections, uh, microparticle settings, yeah, you're also limited there on what you potentially can, can achieve. Now, for those of you that who paid attention, I did four and I mentioned three, and that's my little take on King Louis and Jungle Book who said, have two bananas. <laughs> so, but the idea here is basically that there is a fourth element, but that is not specific to just biologics, um, because there is also small molecule drugs with reactive chemically reactive groups, where those chemically reactive groups that typically are present, of course, in large biologics can react with the polymer matrix system where they either cause destabilization of the biologic or cause destabilization of the polymer matrix. And in that sense, you lose control over the release as well. So that's the four elements that we typically look at from why it hasn't been so successful yet. Now, so maybe um, following up on that a bit, let's talk a little bit about the stability of the biologics. Frederick, do you want to take the lead on that? Yeah, I think we already discussed a bit on this, but, but th that's true. I mean, the biologics, they are a bit different because we have not only to retain stability on the chemical side, and they are large molecules, so there is lots of groups that you have to chemically protect, but also you have to be to be sure that you're not going to, to destroy the structure and to destroy the, the biological activity. So that's that's a, that's another thing that we have to think about, and and it's it's where we can fail often. It's it's this kind of uh, biological activity that we need to retain, and. Not only we need to think about the shelf life, so, so the stability of the drug product itself, huh? so, but this we can have at four Celsius degrees or something like this. But when we inject this into a patient, uh, it's at body temperature, and there is enzymes, there is, there is a pH, there is all these things. So I think that one of the main difference between small molecule and biologics for the formulation scientist, <laughs> for, for everyone, it's, it's about, really about stability, yeah. I think that's a good point. And then maybe let's touch a little bit about the manufacturing challenges. So Matt, do you want to take us on that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's some of the chemical compatibility aspects that Frederick mentioned, both in terms of use of oils or co-solvents or things like that that may ultimately impact the the structure, the conformations of your your uh, your molecules that you're trying to maintain. But then there's also things like agitation or how we're mixing that may ultimately disrupt structure as well. And so you kind of have to reinvent or, or rethink not only the materials you're using but the processes you're using in order to to, to maintain those aspects. 
And then Brent, I don't know if you want to comment a bit about how device can play a role in terms of from a product presentation perspective. Yeah, well, I'm a little bit of the oddball up here with all the, we've got a lot of smart formulation uh, chemists that are really attacking these problems. I think at the end of the day, from, from a device perspective, we need to be able to react and understand as these formulations are getting more and more complex, more and more difficult, you know, making sure that the devices themselves are suitable for, for delivering, these, delivering these products. And I think, um, you know, we have to make sure that we're always paying attention to the problems that are needing, needed to be solved. Um, as you guys get these products marketed, we know how many times we see formulations or medicines that are developed and, you know, people look around and say, well, there's, there's no device that can handle or manage this and it gets put on the shelf. You know, these are important drugs. We need to get them to patients. And if us as device suppliers can help solve these challenges in any way, you know, we want to be able to support that. Thanks for that. And so now that we've sort of talked a bit about some of the challenges, let's talk about what's been, um, what's new in terms of from a platform or technology perspective that's helping us overcome some of these limitations. I'm going to turn it over to Frederick to sort of talk about some of the technologies coming out of Dell SciTech. Wow. Okay. Um, I think I will, I will continue with the stability because it's something that, that is important uh, for our technology at least. So. You remember I said that we need to, to have the stability of, of the biologic from the chemical perspective. Uh, so what we are using is silica. So we know that silica, for instance, in our technology is, um, is based on silicon chemistry. So it's very not reactive, very poorly reactive with the carbon chemistry. So in that sense, we do not have so much of this kind of uh, instability due to chemical instability. But the, the second thing is, is more elegant, I would say, is that the main problem that we have seen in biologics is that they can be exposed directly to the medium, the, the, the body fluid. And there is pH, there is, there is enzymes that we have discussed before. And in all technologies, the API is in its dry form. So the biological entities are spray dried together with silica. So basically, they are a bit like if they would be freeze dried together with an inert excipient. And because there is no diffusion, the biologics do not see the environment. And hence, they are just protected just because they are in their dry form as long as possible until they are, uh, at the end, released. So I think it's, it's a very simple fix for, for this, but it's, it's um, simple is good sometimes. No, yeah. that's great. And so maybe turning over to Mark a bit in terms of, from a biomaterials perspective, what's new out there? Yeah, I basically can build on what, what Frederick already said, is, is that what we've considered in the design and development of our Therapia platform, our amino acid-based polyester amide, is that water uptake is, is a critical parameter. Water uptake drives the degradation rate of the polymer. Water uptake drives the release rate of the large biologic in the end. So, so having taken that as a critical design parameter in a, in, a, in a materials platform, what we initially focused on in design of that of that polymer platform is is the initial hydrophilicity of, of the polymer, and and having basically design opportunities within the polymer platform to increase or decrease that hydrophilicity. And what that does is that when we implant or subject the uh, polymer-based drug delivery system to the bodily environment, the initial hydrophilicity determines the initial water uptake. And that initial water uptake then starts driving the degradation and starts driving the initial uh, release of that large biologic. And 
the innate nature of our amino acid-based polyesterase or therapy, our platform is such that it has a zero biodegradation rate, and with the biodegradation, you'll see an increase of hydrophilicity of the polymer system, and with the increased hydrophilicity, the more the water uptake, and that then drives the release of that large biologic also over the later stages of, of that of that uh, polymer system. Now, another benefit of, of our polymer system is the fact that it has an innate capability of buffering. So what we have seen in the more traditional polymer-based systems where we see acid buildup because of polymer breakdown products and the core acidification within our system that actually is prevented by that, by that um, buffering capacity, which again helps stabilizing, and again, this comes then back to the two, to the two challenges I mentioned before, in help stabilizing that, that biostability of the biologic, again, over the duration of, the, of the, the loading and release of the biologic. No, thank you. And so, so you've heard from, from the two panelists already about in terms of the material itself. Let's sort of talk a little bit about device, from a device perspective. What can we do there? Yeah. Um, I guess as the honorary Genentech person, I can talk about the Genentech product, even though I didn't have anything to do with the development. Um, but in the ophthalmic space, you know, there's a recent approval of a product called Sysvimo uh, for wet AMD, which was a monoclonal antibody fragment that was uh, ultimately replacing monthly intravitreal injections with a, a refillable device, the one-time surgery that can ultimately enable a refill into the device every six months. And, you know, it was really an interesting approach that required selection of an appropriate antibody that could be stable for six months in the eye, which is not a trivial thing to do, um, a device that was optimized for a diffusion-controlled release of the drug from the the device, um, and then a particular surgical procedure to implant the device, and a particular additional device to exchange the solution that's in the eye. And so it ultimately required this innovation in terms of each of these aspects in order to bring this forward. But you know, as, as far as um, I'm aware, it's one of the first, if not the first, uh, large molecule long-acting injectable product that's out there. It is, and so in terms of like this device was designed for that thalamic indications. How can you do, um, how can you sort of imagine how this can be leveraged for other areas? Yeah, I mean it's 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 definitely an interesting one. Um, you know, certainly in the eye, there's there's certain uh, optimizations that would have to be done for each new compound that you want to put in there. But at least this establishes a huge amount of infrastructure and understanding about that. Um, how do you apply that to other uh, local administration in other cavities? I think that's that's certainly a, a unique challenge that, that would have to be worked on with with probably new devices. Sounds good. And so maybe turning it over to Brent there, can you sort of comment on your perspective from a device? Yeah, certainly. I think, um, unfortunately for this category, I think it's um, largely ignored by devices, un unfortunately. And I think that's something that we, needs to, that we need to try and change. Um, in many cases, you hope that you can kind of develop, you know, formulate these products into kind of a single chamber system and make them liquid stable. And, you know, all this challenge that you guys talked about with these polymer-based systems. But when you can't and things get more complex and you have to have multi-component systems and you may have powders, you may have diluents, you may have things with super high viscosities or... Um, you know, 
oil-based systems that don't really wet polymers very well and having to manage all of that, you know, trying to develop a system. I mean, even with Matthew just described, you know, developing a device at Genentech, still relatively complicated with all the number of steps that he just walked us through, right? You know, the ability to kind of simplify that, automate that, reduce the number of steps, reduce the potential for errors when you go into administration and start looking at these problems holistically and saying, how can we automate this? How can we improve this? I mean, we do so much these days with, you know, with connected devices and connected health. You know, I think solving problems for how we bring these products into the body, I think that's something that we can achieve. No, thank you. And so maybe switching gear a little bit. So I think we've talked a lot about like the materials, some of the stabilization questions and the manufacturing challenges. Let's sort of talk a little bit about how do you get something from the bench to the clinic? How do we advance that? Maybe we can start off with you, Mark, in terms of providing your perspective. Yeah, I don't think I have anything earth shattering to say on that, but, but the one thing I would share is that I don't think it's going to be so much different than bringing a small molecule drug from bench, from bench to the clinic, right? Um, the, maybe the main difference I, I would share in, in the design development of long-acting injectables for, for biologics is that given the material of choice in the formulation development of a long-acting inject, uh, injectable biologic, is going to be so critical, and there is so little room uh, for forgiveness for for what you choose as a material. Um, small molecule drugs can be a bit more forgiving, if you will. Um, so the only advice I would have is to partner early on with biomaterials experts in, in designing those long-acting formulations. And in ideal world, you bring the best of both worlds together, where the experts on exactly the biological drug, what are the weaknesses and strengths of a biological drug that have to be taken into account in formulation development, can be matched up with the expertise of the biomaterials experts in making sure that is taken into consideration in, in that particular of formulation development, but for the rest, I think the process is, is pretty much the same. But yeah, look for marrying early on those different expertises. Um, do other people want to comment? Sure. I think, uh, you know, just coming back to this, to this uh, landscape that I had, had done, when we looked at the most common approval pathway for uh, long-acting injectables. It was something like 80% of them were through 505B2 pathway. And so I think what that tells us about the clinical, the, you know, the, the route from bench to, to approval is really that it doesn't go directly to a long-acting injectable oftentimes. It's collecting a huge amount of uh, data and, and development uh, history associated with an initial molecule, and then ultimately after you've de-risked de a lot of that biology and development work, then you can ultimately progress to this. Um, and so I think it's once you kind of, uh, you kind of have to invest in that aspect, and then another aspect of investment often comes in terms of investing in platform technologies, because I know at least from from the, the big pharma side, we, we uh, really love our platform technologies and being able to invest in one platform that we can pl apply across many different things. And so the more you can de-risk it, the uh, greater the likelihood of success from bench to, to, to approval is. Sounds good. Any other thoughts from the panelists? Just a very stupid advice, very simple, but change <laughs> as little as possible. So yes. if you could have the right uh, commercial formulation from the very beginning. <laughs> so we have, we asked this all the time, so, you know, the right device from the beginning. 
uh, the right process and the right formulation, but of course it's it's very it's it's not always possible, of course. But I, I, I have been in this situation that when I was doing a, a formulation phase one, um, it was perfect for the clinicians, so they say, don't change anything, it's too good. But then after you have to change the formulation because you have to optimize it for phase two, you have to go to another scale, and there is always risk that the first results that you have are not translating on phase two, on phase three, or in commercial. Oh, great, I think there's a lot of challenges. Did you have anything to add, Brian? Yeah, well, I mean, just kind of on what you just said, I think, um, you know, especially on the, from the device perspective again, right? I would say it's, it's very common um, that you, people, pharmaceutical companies will wait till kind of late stage development to really consider a device, right? So maybe you're kind of getting into phase three and then you're saying, okay, what are the device opportunities out there? And I say for this category, can't wait that long. Come talk to us early. I mean, talk to us in phase one. Talk to us when you're still working on the bench because, um, and I'll tell you, we've been work talking to a few potential partner companies that, and customers that we've been supporting and um, who weren't necessarily even aware of our technology. And they were already down-selecting formulations because they were kind of had preconceived notions about what the delivery needed to look like. And then they came to us and said, wait, 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 you're telling me that this best-in-class formulation over here that I just demonstrated clinically is, you're telling me you can manage that in your device and now I can think about taking that to commercial? 100%, so absolutely, you need to come talk to us early because you may have already made decisions and you're in, in phase three and you've already made decisions early on that you had to abandon when you didn't necessarily need to do that. So make us aware of what your problems are and give us a chance to engage early and see if we can help. We know, the, you know, we know what it takes to develop devices, right? And it takes time. Uh, we also know what your clinical timelines look like, right? So um, we think we can help, but. And so maybe just some concluding thoughts in terms of, could each one of you guys provide your perspective on what will it take to be successful in this field? Um, I think from the, first, the answers to the first questions, it seems like we will need investment in new technologies, new approaches, taking risk with those, whether that's from new materials, as you know, uh, we, we've, we've heard here, or new devices, that's mm -hmm. I think gonna be absolutely critical. I'm Frederick. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 it will take lots of trials and errors. I mean, it's, it, we, we should... Uh, we should try to optimize every time we see something to, to, be, to be successful. Um, I wish we would have more excipient to work with uh, for the formulation. That would be something that would be great. I know that there is some, some talk about this, about like, uh, having like, uh, easier access with new excipient with the FDA. I think that we are needing that. We are needing new excipients for having new, new physical properties and chemical properties, especially for the biologics. Mark? Yeah, I have a very selfish view, uh, and I think uh, if the whole premise, of course, of this panel was that what worked or, or what works for, for small molecule drugs obviously doesn't immediately translate into, into large biologics, right? And we've, we've, we've talked about the challenges that we face. Um, and so in that sense, my selfish view of, of success is we need to re-envision polymer design. And again, I'm selfish in the sense that we're a polymer materials-based company, obviously. Um, but that comes back to, to what I said earlier, is how can we better control, given again, diffusion limitations, payload limitations, stability limitations, how can we get control in the design of a polymers of, of water uptake? Because that's eventually what drives 
uh, what drives the release of the biologic and within an environment that prevents core acidification, provides an environment that is safer, is more beneficial for, for the biologic stability over, again, over the duration of, of, of the release uh, uh, that you want. And in that sense, I think with our therapy platform, we've made great strides forward. Are we there yet? No, but we've made great strides forward, as was presented uh, yesterday in a technology track by my colleague Lukas Koroniak, is where we have been able to demonstrate uh, multi-months, four months, and, 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 and then some uh, release of a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Now, that's a small biologic, but we have also data on hand of multi-month release of larger biologics uh, that go into the tens of kilodalton, 60 and, and, and larger. So in that sense, we're making great strides forward. We'll continue to invest in, in developing our, our polymer-based platform, or therapy platform. And I must say, we actually have some exciting early results on hand that uh, I hope we can present on next year here at POT. Sounds good. And Brian? Yeah, I think um, on the device side, we just need to pay attention, you know, to these challenges, that these new problems that are being created. I think, you know, we know that a huge portion of the market is, you know, one, you know say 70% of the market is can deal with a one mil long PFS-based auto-injector. I think that's going to be changing over time, and we need to make sure that we stay in front of it and we kind of watch and monitor, you know, these problems that are getting created and how we as a device provider can, you know, help. Okay, and maybe just to end, I, um, would you guys provide sort of your perspective on what you envision for the future in this field? <laughs> well, I'll go. <laughs> I hope that WinGap is a, a, a device leader in the long-acting injectables category. <laughs> we can actually be delivering, you know, most of the molecules that are out there that these guys are creating. <laughs> Well, the definition of future is, of course, very subjective, right? For some, tomorrow is the future, and for others, this is uh, 25 years out, uh, right? But, but I hope that, uh, let's say, in the foreseeable future, which in my definition is, say, in the next three to five years, uh, we certainly have been able to demonstrate uh, uh, that we can get to multiple months of, of, of release of a large biologic in a way that, uh, that provides for new enabling therapies that, at the end of the day, we do this all for patients, right? so that at the end of the day, it brightens the lives of patients. No, I'd, I would like just to, to see more of these long-acting injectables uh, for biologics being approved on the market. Uh, just not, because there are not so many work coming, in fact, uh, as approved, you know, if we are looking through, through the timelines. So I think that it will be good to have more and to have this kind of uh, um, positive positive outcome for, for several projects to, to come for the patient, yeah. Probably a number of new technologies optimized for different routes of administration and different modalities, um, yeah. Okay, so I would like um, this opportunity to thank the panelists for their insight and perspective. And thank you for your attention. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recording from The Pod, Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery 2022 Conference. For more information, please visit podconference.com.